Join me in your Bibles, if you will, this morning to Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. It'll help you if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, whether it be from the, uh, one of the seats in front of you or your own personal electronic device um, or if your own copy of God's Word. But uh, if you have it in front of you, uh, we will begin. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to lift up your name. We want you to be glorified as we consider the text before us this morning. Lord, as we think about the life of Abraham and Sarah and what does it mean to have faith in a world that seems to be going astray, in a world that's full of chaos, uh, a world that's full of anxiety-inducing prices and gas and wars and rumors of wars, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by your word, that we would be strengthened, fortified as we look at who God is and how faithful he is to us. Lord, what a powerful hymn is, great is thy faithfulness. Lord, we, we sing that with all of our heart this morning as we know your faithfulness throughout all generations from the beginning to the end. Lord, we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our passage this morning has two major themes, and they, they flow through it. The first is that God preserves and protects his plan to provide offspring that would later become the nation of Israel through Abraham and Sarah, even when Abraham complicates matters with his deception and sinfulness. The second thing we learn is how foolish it is to try to deliver ourselves from threatening situations by using deceptive and sinful means. And the, the main subject would be this. Uh, deception will not deliver you from danger. Only trusting in Christ, who is the promise of God, will deliver you. Sinful acts cannot save God's people from threatening situations. Let's look and see how this plays out in the life of Abraham. Verse 10 says this, There was a famine in the land. So Abraham, or Abram, went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. You know, our temptation and danger is to lie. When we, uh, when we are... Waking up in the morning, we don't think, man, I really want to cheat on my taxes today, right? It's not a, a, a thought that goes into our mind because it's just a fun thing to do is to tell a lie or to cheat or to be deceptive. The reason we cheat on our taxes is because the circumstances lend us towards wanting to protect ourselves, don't they? Uh, what about when your wife comes to you and says, does this dress make me look fat? What is, what is our, our, our common human response? We either lie or do we act embarrassed and say, uh, 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 you look beautiful, right? And, and so we have this self-preservation that comes when we are threatened, right? When something that we cherish is threatened. So certain circumstances such as fear of not being able to pay our bills can lead us to lying, to being deceptive, to cheating, to cheating on our taxes. The reality is our children also lie 
in an effort to avoid the consequences of their actions, don't they? When your kids come to you, do they usually uh, decide they want to lie for the fun of it or for some particular reason? Why do politicians lie? Now, some people say they're born to lie, but I think that one fact is that they have a, a protection, a self-preservation, and so when they lie, they're trying to preserve something. You know, there's another type of lying or deceiving that we have. It's called the fear of man. Now, when we're afraid of man or humans, it's not necessarily just the fear of, of being killed or executed or anything like that, but also there's a fear of what they think about me. So we put on a, a, a front, right? We pretend that everything's going okay, even though things are not going okay. And Proverbs 29, 25 warns us. It says, for the fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. So Abraham is in a tight spot, isn't he? Look at verse 10 again. There was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Do you see the repetition there? We have a famine, and then it's repeated and said the, the famine was severe. So this famine that is so severe indicates that Abraham really had no choice, but he had to flee. He had to flee from the promised land, Canaan, because remember he was living there. He was living in Canaan, and he had to flee the promised land just after getting there. Now, he had two choices. He could go north, back to Ur, where there's the Euphrates River that provides a ton of, of um, crops, or down south to Egypt, where the Nile is. And so instead of returning home after he had just been called out of Ur, he decides to go to Egypt, to the Nile, because they had the irrigation techniques that they uh, were able to provide food, maybe not as good as we do today. So when trouble came, they had to run to Egypt for help. So early is he deserting the promised land, yet the famine leaves him no choice. Now, are you connecting the dots to other Bible stories? What about Joseph? Remember Joseph? He was sent to Egypt ahead of his parents in order to provide food for his family, for the nation of Israel. And then not only that, but remember Jesus, when his parents, when he was early born, his parents ran to Egypt. So there's a lot of connections to this fleeing to Egypt in Scripture. And so we have this famine. The solution, of course, is he goes down to Egypt. He goes down to Egypt, the large river provides food, and doesn't go back. And so it says that he will reside as an alien, not as a citizen. Look at this, the words here. It says, he went to Egypt to stay there for a while. That word for stay really means to abide or to rest or to remain there for a while, which is what stay means. So I don't know why I just told you all those three things. It's the same thing, right? And so he is remaining there as a, as a resident alien. What does that mean, though? Think about someone who runs across the border here in America. What rights and privileges do they have? They don't have the same rights and privileges as a citizen, do they? And so Abraham, in the same way, he's going to Egypt. He will not have the same protections as citizenship. He will not be protected. Then look at verse 11 through 12. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, so he's on the border, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Well, that's a really wooing way to talk to your wife, isn't it? I know what a beautiful woman you are. 
when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. So we hear what his solution is. He says, I know you are beautiful. So now, not only this, so not only is he running from the famine, he's entering into Egypt and he recognizes his wife is a beautiful woman. Now, Sarai is probably about 65. And remember, she lives to be about 125, 130, somewhere around there. And if you think about that, so she's only about middle age for her thing. So she's probably about, in our equivalent human years, um, probably about 35, 40. And so she's a beautiful woman. And he recognizes that her beauty could cause him to die. He has the fear of man. And so we have this danger. There's a famine. He flees to Egypt. But as he's entering into Egypt, he recognizes he has a beautiful wife. So not only was his wife beautiful, which makes him a target, he also recognizes that his rights are limited. And so the Egyptians, by killing him, really wouldn't face many consequences because he was an illegal alien in the land. And so he has not the same rights. Think about the Ukrainian refugees that are not having the same legal protections in the countries in Europe that they're fleeing to. Now, of course, I think civilized societies are trying to make sure that doesn't happen. But think about that for a minute. They have no safety, no security of their own. They have to rely fully on the government. And that's what Abraham has to do. He has to rely on someone for his safety. So Abraham is in a tight spot, and he comes up with a solution. Let's look at his solution, verse 13. It says, Please say, you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. So here's the solution. Tell people that you're my sister. That way, if someone wants to marry her, they would have to request Abraham's permission. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? If someone wants to marry her, they would have to get the man's permission to marry um, he, as the, the male figure in her life. So maybe he could do some delaying tactics, right? And say, oh, yeah, well, um, give it six months and you know, get 500 bulls and 3,000 cattle. And, right? He can make up a bridal price that's exorbitant. Um, and so he has this plan. He says, if someone wants to marry you, they'll have to ask my permission because you'll be my sister. They won't be inclined to kill me as your husband. So he has a plan to escape. The same strategy, though, is used in Genesis 20, verse 2. He used that with King Abimelech, doesn't he? He tells King Abimelech that Sarai is his sister. And about the same thing happens. doesn't go so well. His son Isaac decides to also co-opt this strategy in 26.6. He does the same thing with his wife. So think about how he probably justifies this in his own mind. Think about this for a minute. It's only a little lie, right? Just a small white lie, right? Everybody, everybody loves a, a white lie, a small lie. She is really the daughter of his father, but not the daughter of his mother. So she's kind of like a half-sister. So it's kind of true, right? Halfway true. Think about that when we do our taxes. When you're doing your taxes, do you say, man, I really want to claim this baby carriage on my taxes, because really, I mean, it's, it's important for my work that my baby's taken care of, right? And we, we start to justify in our minds why we are going to be deceitful. I think our children probably do the same thing in their minds. Well, it's not really my fault that I 
smacked my brother in the face. It's really his fault because he was being naughty. So I'm just punishing him as he, you know. And so we have these, these thoughts that go in our brain. I think Abraham probably has the same thought. And he might be thinking, you know what? I have to stay alive so God can fulfill his promise to provide a child and a future nation. I'm really helping God here, right? I'm really helping God along in this. So in his mind, he has it all figured out. Don't we do that, though, in our own lives? Don't we, in order to deceive someone else or deceive someone, we begin to justify it in our mind? Well, we're really helping God in this, right? And so his lack of faith, Abraham, who is the paradigm of faith, his lack of faith has consequences, massive consequences. And that's what we learn is that deception is harmful to our spiritual lives. Let's look at verse 14. Actually, before we go to verse 14, let me tell you this. Lies are harmful to our spiritual lives. And we get some materialistic value out of lying sometimes. Lies promise an escape, but they only offer short-term results. They always complicate every single time. A lie will complicate your life. Deception always reaps destruction. Deception reaps havoc on the lives of families. So deception always complicates. Abraham's plan seems to be working. Let's read verse 14. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Man, he hit the nail on the head, didn't he? His wife was beautiful. He was right. He had good, good observation skills. And the Egyptians saw her as beautiful. Now, things seem to be going all right then, huh? His plan seems to be working. The Egyptians saw his 65-year-old wife as beautiful. Then, verse 15 happens, the complication. Look at this. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken into Pharaoh's household. Now we have a complication, don't we? His plan was working until Pharaoh's officials noticed. And they brought him into the household. They see her, they praise her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his household. Now this language denotes the formal taking of a wife. Now it's also distinguished from marital intercourse. So we don't know if there was something that happened beyond that. But we do know that he has brought her into his household as a wife, added her to his harem. And so she is now in Pharaoh's palace. Well, what we see is that there's going to be some complications to that for Pharaoh as well. So we don't know if it was intentionally vague, whether or not there was marital relations in this or not. But what happens to Abraham? So his wife is now taken into Pharaoh's household. And Abraham is here. Well, the world will re reward your deception. If you cheat on your taxes, you'll probably get a little bit of money back, won't you? Look at verse 16. He treated Abraham well because of her. And Abraham acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. He got some bride presents. The bride price was paid to him. Pharaoh lavished Abraham for the price of his wife, for Sarai. In fact, the language here, the flocks and the herds, the donkeys, 
the slaves and the camels. Camels are luxury items. They were not really well known at that time. And so these are luxury items. He has been giving Ferraris and Teslas, right? He's been getting high quality goods to for the sake of his wife. Each of the wife-sister episodes will result in material gain as a result of the deception. So Abraham, when he goes and lies to Abimelech, and then when Isaac lies to Abimelech, they all receive material benefit from their deception. However, these riches will become a plague. They will become a plague to him. Think about this. So Abraham gets all these flocks. What happens in just a couple episodes in chapter 13? Who's... Whose people begin to fight? Lot. And Abraham's workers begin to fight over the land because there's not enough space for them. They have too much goods. They are too rich. More money, more problems would be a good principle to add to that. And so now we have a complication because of his lie. And let's think about this. The greatest conflict between people groups today is a result of this episode here. Did you know that? The Arab-Israeli conflict is a result of what happened here in this deception. Did you know that? Think about this. This reward that he got was Egyptian slaves, one of which was a woman. What is that woman's name? Hagar. That's right. And so Hagar was one of the rewards that Abraham got for this deception. Hagar has a daughter, doesn't she? Or a son named Ishmael. And who do the Arabs trace their lineage back to? Ishmael. And so that's what we have here. So this deception gives Abraham some material gain. His lying, deceitfulness, and wickedness provide him with physical rewards, which later become a plague to him, which later cause much more strife and trauma and drama, and everything else that comes from his deception. We can trace the Arab-Jewish conflict all the way back to this event here. Isn't that amazing? Deception always reaps destruction. Deception reaps, reaps havoc on lives and families today. This is why deception will be exposed by the Lord. Your lies will be exposed. 17 through 20 will be this exposition of the lie. The first two scenes in our passage have echoed the Garden of Eden. Sarai and the tree in the garden are both described as being pleasant and beautiful. Then the sin progresses. You have this seeing, then you have this taking of the desired person or of the desired fruit. So remember Eve... She says she sees the tree and it is pleasant, the fruit is pleasant, and then she sees it, she takes it, and then it is exposed. And the same thing happens here. Pharaoh's officials saw her, praised her, and she was taken into Pharaoh's household. The same language as the garden. So for Abraham, the plan has fallen apart. Think about where Abraham is now. He's in a foreign land. He has no rights or legal um, protections. His wife is now in Pharaoh's palace due to his own deception, his own lying and deceitful plan. He's getting all these rewards, which I bet are getting really sour to him, um, which is what lies do, right? Our our rewards from deception become sour. 
And he is sitting here thinking, what am I going to do? What do I do now? For Abraham, the plan has fallen apart. The blessing and the seed seems to be at risk. God's promise to Abraham to bless him and give a seed that will grow into a nation that will bless other nations seems to be at risk. His deceit has put the, the plan in jeopardy. So what happens? Well, think about this. God's people were in captivity not too long after this was written. So when this was written, Moses was in the Exodus. The Exodus has happened. Moses is writing in the wilderness, and he's writing the story down so the people of Israel can read it. As he writes about it, he is writing this time where they are reading it from a, a just-escaped perspective. So the Israelites who have just escaped Pharaoh are reading back into this story and seeing themselves in the story. So the promise, the promised people are in captivity by Pharaoh. Pharaoh has her in his household. They know what it's like to be in captivity in Egypt. The people who read this initially, the, the Israelites, know what it means. And so God begins to expose sin just like he did in the garden. And really, this is God's grace. When he exposes your sin, your idolatry, and your lies, it really is a blessing. Since we are forced to consider repentance. So it's the goal for the freedom from bondage. The Lord is gracious to us in that he will expose the lie. Let's look at how God exposes Abraham. Verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So what happens? Severe plagues. Now, doesn't this prefigure something? It prefigures the Exodus story. So God plagues the household of Pharaoh with plagues. It also fulfills the curse motif from earlier in chapter 12. Let's go back and look at what God promised Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And look at this. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This is fulfilling that curse motif. Even though the Egyptians didn't know that they were doing something sinful or wicked against God, there's still a cursing. So let's make a few things clear here. The promise is not nullified by Abraham's sinfulness. Abraham, in his deception and his lies, did not nullify the promise. The promise still stands that there would be a great nation that would come. The punishment on Pharaoh and his household, they experienced it even though they didn't realize what they were doing. So God exposes Abraham's deception. And then we see what, what Pharaoh does. Look at verse 18. It says, So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here's your wife, take her and go. In verse 18, Pharaoh sends for Abram, Abraham 
and asks them some very similar questions. These are the same type of questions that God used in Genesis 3, 9. We have the, the echoes of the garden in this passage. In the garden, God sent for, called for Adam and says, where are you? And then what does he ask? What have you done? That's what he asked the wife. What have you done? Pharaoh asked the same question. What have you done to me? Why did you do this to me? Why did you lie? These are the same words that we see in Genesis chapter 4.10 when he's talking to Cain, when God talks to Cain. And he says, what have you done? The blood of your brother cries out from the ground. So the same language here, we have this also in the other two sister-wife episodes. The foreign king are always shocked by the dishonesty of the patriarch of Abraham and Isaac. They're always shocked. They are they're wondering about this dishonesty. What an indictment. What a condemnation it is when an unbeliever is shocked by your sin. Even the unbelievers are shocked at the way that you are sinning. Think about that for a minute. What a condemnation that is when the people of God act like they have no God and the world is shocked. What type of testimony did Abraham give to the greatness of the living God? The antidote to unfaithfulness is to know who our God is, and Abraham seems to have forgotten the God that he is supposed to be serving. When we commit the sin of grumbling and complaining, what does that tell others about our God? When every time you meet with someone in the street and you're grumbling and complaining, what does that tell them about the God that you serve? He's not good. He's not great. He doesn't care for you. That's what you're telling an unbelieving world. When we lie and cheat and steal, what does that say about our lack of faith in God's ability to provide? It means we don't trust that God has the ability to provide for us. When we think that we know better than God because we deserve this or we should have that in our time, in our timeline, we are saying that we don't believe in the living God who provides. We rob God of His glory when we don't trust in His promises before an unbelieving world. We absolutely rob God. We are stealing from the Lord when we grumble and complain. We are stealing from God when we cheat on our taxes. In verse 19, we see some mercy from Pharaoh. Verse 19, why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here's your wife, take her and go. It's a very short, terse statement of judgment. Now Pharaoh's leniency is, is really remarkable since adultery was a death penalty crime even in Egypt. Adultery was known to be a penalty of death. Pharaoh acknowledged God is protecting him since he takes he decides not to take revenge on Abraham. Now what we notice here is by subtraction. We don't see anything from Abraham here, do we? Abraham doesn't protest his innocence. Abraham doesn't say Pharaoh wait 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 no you got me all wrong. That's not what happened. No Pharaoh doesn't or Abraham doesn't say anything. He is silent before Pharaoh. Do you know what that means? In Hebrew literature, 
it means he's guilty. It means he knows his guilt and he is guilty. Abraham's lack of response shows his acknowledgement of his guilt and the justice of royal anger towards him. Moses, when he's writing this, writes it in such a way that we know that Abraham was wrong. He doesn't go out right and say Abraham was wrong and, and being deceitful, but he shows it in the words and what he keeps and what he doesn't keep in here. And then verse 20 will end our episode. Look at this. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him, and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. So Pharaoh instructed his men, and they sent him away, not taking anything from them. So he didn't get back the bridal stuff. He didn't take back the camels. He didn't take back the sheep. He just said, know what? Get out of here. Get, we need to get rid of you. This expulsion from Pharaoh's land, from Egypt, is the same type of expulsion from the garden. The same language that God uses when he, he kicks out Adam and Eve from the garden is the same language used here. He gives men orders about him. God gave the angel orders to guard the entrance to the garden. And then he sent them away. And we have the same thing happen here. Pharaoh instructed them to get rid of them. So let's remember how we started this passage. So I said there are two themes that are mentioned in this passage or, or flow through this passage. First is that God preserves and protects his plan to provide offspring that would become the nation of Israel through Abraham and Sarah, even when Abraham complicates with his deception. Second, we learn how foolish it is to try and deliver ourselves from threatening situations by using deceitful or deceptive sinful means. So God's plan was never under threat. Abraham was foolish in his deceit, thinking that he could do that anything could disrupt God's plan and promise. Abraham could have easily trusted in God as he went into Egypt and got his food that he needed to survive. But instead, he decided to be deceitful. You know, there's no foolish scheme of man nor wicked king that can disrupt God's plan for the world. There's nothing. No human being can ever disrupt God's plan. Abraham had to learn his lesson the hard way. And he does learn this lesson in the following chapters. And we'll see how he learns what it means to be a man of faith. So God promised Abraham that his seed would one day inherit the land of Canaan. And even further, that all the nations would be blessed through the seed. So Abraham failed to trust in the promise of God. And then this reality will play out in our lives today. The question that we have before us is, do we trust in Jesus Christ? Jesus is the seed of Abraham that we are called to trust in today. Now, Romans 4, 16-25, Paul uses the same language to explain our need to trust in the Lord. I want to read it to you, so just listen to how it goes. This is why the promise is by faith. So that they may be according to so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants. Now that word for descendants is literally in the Greek seed. To all the seed, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. That's talking about the Gentiles. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God, in whom he believed. The one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, 
so that he became the father of many nations, according to what has been spoken, so will your seed be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but for us also. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was raised up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Did you get that last verse? It said, it will be credited to us who believe in him. The one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is incredibly good news. We do not have to fear anything. There is absolutely nothing that you have to fear. You don't have to fear rising gas prices. You don't have to fear an inflation-style economy. You don't have to fear the next Great Depression. You don't have to fear a nuclear war. You do not have to fear upworld and upheaval because we have been justified with Christ. The one who raised Jesus from the dead promises this, guarantees this. The one who gave Abraham a child even when he was in his hundreds, who Sarah, who had an older lady's womb, was able to have a child. If you have surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ, you belong to him. You don't have to fear the kings and pharaohs of Egypt. You can trust in him. Your sins have been transferred to him. All your sins have fallen on him in order for us to be saved. Not only that, but God raised him from the dead for our justification, for our right standing before the throne of God, all because of Jesus. Which really means we have nothing to fear. God's purpose will be accomplished not only in the world, but also in our own lives. Look at Philippians 1.6. It says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Think about that for a minute. So not only does God promise his people something, he promises you individually something, that if you belong to Jesus Christ, he will carry his work to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He will work in you. There's no need for you to fear what man can do. It doesn't matter what the elders' opinion of you are. It doesn't matter what your neighbors think of you. Stand for the living God. Do not be deceitful. What happens if you have to pay extra in your taxes? What happens if the gas prices go up and you have to get a horse and buggy? Right? We, somebody told me the other day that we need to trust God and tighten our belt. I guess some of us could benefit from losing a little bit of weight, right? And so we have to trust in the living God, no matter what comes before us, because he promises us that we have nothing to fear but faithlessness. The reality is the deception will not deliver you from danger. No lie that you tell will ever save you from this, uh, the problems that we face. Only trusting in Christ, the promise of God will deliver you. Will you be delivered from fear today? Trust in Christ. 
trust in the promise. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be a beacon of trust to our lost world. Father, I know so many people are afraid in the world today. I know our neighbors are worried about the cost of everything going up. Financially, there's fear. Lord, we know that there's fear of war. We know that there's fear in every aspect of life. Fear from the pandemic that still lingers. We have so much to be afraid of, yet counter to that, we can have joy and hope and, and no fear because we trust in the living God, the maker of the heavens and the earth, that no king or no scheme of man could ever pluck us from his hand. We have Christ and Christ alone to thank for our salvation, who took on our sins. Lord, I pray that this week would be a time of reflection on the goodness of God, that we would reflect on you and that we would share how much we trust in you. Lord, as, as I think about Christ on this earth, as he lived, he lived in active obedience to your will. And as he lived, he showed us a way to be conformed into the image that you have created us to be. Father, we ask for this image to be sharpened, heightened in each one of us, that we would love our spouses without deceit, without hiddenness, but be fully open and transparent to one another. Lord, I pray that you would destroy the spirit of grumbling and complaining that happens in our lives, that we would be able to trust in you and your timing, not our own timing, that, Lord, even if a famine were to arise in the land, that we would trust in the living God to provide for us, Lord, knowing that you are a good and great God. We ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our only righteousness. All God's people said, Amen.